This is Christopher Mad Dog Russo's Digging Up the Past, an historical podcast taking a deep dive into the 10 greatest Major League Baseball teams to never win the World Series. Hello, everyone. Christopher Mandrog Russo digging up the past. We look at the 10 greatest teams that never won a World Series. We chose 10. It was sort of a committee. The one caveat we put in, I did not put in a particular team, and then a year later they won it. For instance, the A9As, the 88As would be a team you'd use, lost to the Dodgers, but they won it in A9, so it doesn't make any sense. So we try to do it from that standpoint. This episode focuses on the 65 Twins. Of all the great teams we're examining here, you can make an argument that this 65 ball club is really a team and a franchise that just does not get a lot of credit. Uh, you know, you kind of forget about this team, but they were very, very good for a period of time here. This is not a one-year wonder. Very good franchise in the 60s. They were in a contention to wear for a title or an American League pennant almost every year. They won the pennant once. They won the American League West, AL West, when divisional play began in both 69 and 70. In 67, they lost on the last weekend of the year to the Red Sox in that great pennant race when Yaskrimski beat them. So this is really a very, very good baseball team for a period of time. Tony Oliva, the great Cuban slugging right fielder, batting champ the whole nine yards for the Twins, he sheds light on the challenges his team faced throughout the 60s. In those days, to win a penny, it had to be very, very tough because, you know, you got to know your Yankees stay there all the time. Baltimore have a great ball club. Chicago have a great, great, great pitch. And Detroit, everybody was there. You had to finish first to be able to go to the World Series. And everybody have a great pitch staff too. In those days, you see that or that of very close game. Everybody was good, but we were better. I think uh, we have a lot of hitting. All right, 65 is the year the Twins really broke through. I mean, 69 and 70, they had to get through the Orioles. 67, the Red Sox, as I said. 65, though, this ball club is a heck of a team. 102 wins. They were in control of the American League for the entire second half of the season. On July 1st, they were in second place, but then they kicked off the month of the nine-game winning streak. They went from a game back to four up, and they would remain in first place the remainder of the season. So like other teams, you know, the 54 team comes to mind with the Indians. You know, they basically were in pretty good shape there throughout most of the summer. They had the flair for the dramatic as well, the 65 team. 30 of their wins by just a run. They won 11 games in extra innings, and they walked off in the bottom of the ninth 11 more times. Think about it. 11 in extra innings they won, 11 in the bottom of the ninth they won, and 30 of their wins were by one-run variety. Now, that's very impressive. Heart palpitations were the norm for twin fans all season long. Oh, my. And imagine the season's only half over. One after another of games that go right down to the wire. Makes for great baseball, but a little tough on the blood pressure. Here's the pitch. A drive deep to left. Way back. GM Calvin Griffith built this Twins team, managed by Sam Mealy, highest scoring team in the league. They had a future Hall of Famer, Harmon Killebrew, American League batting champ Tony Oliva, and American League MVP Zolio Versailles. Four players belted 20 homers or more, Bob Allison, Jimmy Hall, Don Minchner, and the great Killebrew, the latter who achieved his feat despite missing about a third of the season. So a very solid everyday ball club on a day-in-day-out basis with some near Hall of Famers in Oliva. Baseball writer and analyst our pal Tom Verducci provides a scouting report on Minnesota's offense. Seemed like that Twins organization just kept, you know, getting uh, young hitters coming up through the minor leagues. 
year after year in that 65 team, of course, you, you had Oliva and Allison and, and Killebrew. Very well-balanced team, by the way, offensively. Um, it wasn't like they relied on one or two guys. That is a forgotten era, if you will, without the championship, right? We, we kind of lose track of those teams that were so good for so long, and certainly the Twins were in that group. Versailles won the MVP that season, but legendary baseball broadcaster and historian Bob Costas wasn't too impressed with that MVP resume. He could run a bit, had some power. I think he hit 19 home runs that year, but Killebrew missed a large portion of the season with an injury before he was okay to come back and play in the World Series. Otherwise, you would think that Killebrew or maybe Oliva would be the MVP. No disrespect to Versailles, who was a useful player, but if you look up his numbers, that's among the least impressive statistical lines for an MVP ever. Bob's right. Versailles' number that year, he had 273, 19 homers and 77 RBIs. They do not pop off the page, but to be fair to Versailles, he led the league in runs, doubles, and triples, and won the gold glove at shortstop. The year prior, the twin offense was, they came together, but they were not contending. So their GM, Calvin Griffith, knew if this team was going to improve, they need some pitching. So in the middle of the 64 season, he makes that big trade with the Indians, and he got one of their big pitchers, Jim Mutcat Grant. He just passed away here a couple of months ago. The only problem was, after the trade was official, Nobody bothered to tell Mudcat. When they made a trade for me, in fact, I was a Cleveland Indian, uh, and they made a trade for me in Cleveland when the team was in Cleveland. And I come to the ballpark as a Cleveland Indian, and nothing was in my locker. There were, my shoes was not in my locker. My glove was not in my locker. And the clubhouse guy, I said, where's my stuff? They said, well, we don't know. I said, well, you got to know where my, where my equipment and all of that stuff is. And somebody says, well, we think it's on the other side. I said, other side? They said, yeah, with the other team, which was the Minnesota Twins. So I go over there, and the guy that opened the door was Harmon Killebrew. He says, uh, well, welcome to the Minnesota Twins. And that's how I knew <laughs> that I was traded. Grant led the new and improved pitching staff. He had 21 wins in 65. First African-American pitcher to win 20 in the American League, by the way. And behind Grant, he had good pitchers. He had obviously, you know, he had Jim Cott there behind Grant, who won 18 games that year. Cott was on the mound on September 26th, going for a complete game win with the American League pennant on the line. Here's the windup and the pitch. Straight three, straight ball. The Twins win. Final score. The Twins two. The Senators one. The Twins have won the American League pennant. Remember, in 65, no divisional play. So if you won the pennant, you went straight to the World Series. 69, of course, was the divisional play. So in their fifth year in Minnesota, the Twins advanced the Fall Classic. That's a feat the franchise had not accomplished since the 30s when they played the 1933 World Series against the Giants as the Washington Senators. With the uh, most wins, the top offense, and a very good pitching staff, going to take a special effort to beat this team in a World Series. Their opponent, the Los Angeles Dodgers, led by future Hall of Fame pitchers Sandy Koufax and Don Drysdale. Game one of the World Series was on October 6th. That date is significant because in 65, that was Yom Kippur, the Jewish Day of Atonement, and the holiest day on a Jewish calendar. Koufax 
who was Jewish, never pitched on that day, and Chudu himself stated he would not pitch game one of the World Series. The series kicks off at the Old Met, Metropolitan Stadium in Minneapolis, and the Dodgers gave the ball to Don Drysdale, no Koufax. Yom Kippur, Drysdale, he's a future Hall of Famer in his own right, did not have his best stuff, not at all, in game one. Deep to left. Versailles, three-run homer, more than enough. Twins offense piled on plenty more. Eight total runs. The late Jim Mudcat Grant went the distance. Twins cruise to the victory. Game two, caught against Koufax. Even with the game in Minnesota and as good as Cot was, the baseball world was expecting a big performance from Sandy. Instead, it was Cot who brought the heat on a chilly afternoon in Minneapolis. I'm warming up the next day in the bullpen, and I've never seen Sandy pitch before. And you know, it's cold and it's raw, and he's looking at me. We're only about 12 feet apart. The bullpen's warming up. And he said, man, we you guys play in this weather? And I thought, that's the best chance we have. We play in this cold weather all the time. So game two starts, and we go through the lineup the first time, nothing, nothing. And I sat down next to Johnny Sane in the dugout. I said, John... If I give up a run, this game's over. I don't see anybody on our team that can hit this guy. He just stood out so much. Twins win behind Jimmy, 5-1. to one. Koufax only gave up one earned run, but departed after six innings, and the Twins did some additional damage late in the game to give them a comfortable lead. Game scoreless entering the fifth, by the way. Ron Fairley was on first base. Jim Lefevre belted the ball down the left field line. That was surely going to be extra bases, but Bob Allison, big play, had other ideas. Gillibrew tight to the bag at third. Mincher holding Fairley at first. Line drive down the left field line and hooking from Allison who dives, makes a circus pass. Oh, what a play by Allison. Fairly back to first. A tremendous play by the Minnesota left fielder. Big catch by Allison. Backhand catch keeps the game scoreless. Remember, the Dodgers are not a big offensive team, so when an opportunity arose, they had to take advantage to help that pitching staff. That was a big inning that Allison stopped, and away we go. Cock keeps L.A. quiet the rest of the day. Twins now 2-0 here in this World Series as it pivots to the City of Angels. There's plenty more ways to listen to Mad Dog Sports Radio than turning to Channel 82. Miss any of the shows live? They are all available on the SiriusXM app. Great video content from Morning Men, Adam Shine, and the doggy himself. Have a laugh with Bab Chick from the basement. Plus podcasts like Digging Up the Past and the Adam Shine Podcast. And make sure to check out the Mad Dog interviews and highlights tabs for more great content. It's all available on the SiriusXM app, free for most subscribers. So easy to use, even a Hug can do it. The Dodgers faced an insurmountable hole if they could not pick up a win in game three. They sent Claude Osteen, the old lefty, to the mound while the Twins pounded with Camilio Pasquale. In a must-win game, Osteen came up big. Osteen checks the runner, pitches, and Zimmerman hits a high bouncer straight at Wills. Morey steps on second, fires to first, and it's a double play. The Dodgers win four to nothing. And Claude Osteen is the man of the hour in Los Angeles. The slender lefty hurled a five-hitter to break the momentum of the Twins. 
Osteen was unhittable. This is a very unsung game of this World Series. Dodgers had to win game three, and 24 of the Twins' 27 outs were not even out of the infield, and the Dodgers win their first game of the 65 World Series. With the Twins' momentum broken, the Dodgers came alive in games four and five. L.A. outscored Minnesota 14-2, more than enough for Koufax and Drysdale, who returned to form, limiting the Twins to just nine total hits in those games. Suddenly, the Dodgers back now with the momentum. Series shifts back to Minnesota for a game six and seven. The Dodgers, one win away from a title. Sam Mealy calls a Mudcat Grant. Two days rest, by the way, to keep the twin season alive. Squares off against Osteen, who went in game three, of course, kept them the Dodgers back in that series. Mudcat was a one-man wrecking crew in this game, striking out five on the mound. And when he would step into the batter's box, he would prove to be just as effective. Allison on second, Phyllisian on first, two out. Deep. This is hit deep. Home run. Twin statisticians have a method by which they give an approximate distance for a home run. And they tell us that one was hit 392 feet. Bob Allison also had a two-run home run in this game, and the Twins picked up the victory, forcing that seventh game. Nobody's broken through and won a road game yet in this series. And it's Sandy Koufax matched up against Jim Cott with both pitchers going on two days rest. Now, remember, Drysdale was scheduled to pitch. He told Walter Olson, you don't do yourself a favor, pitch Sandy in the game. Game seven was scored us through three. Cott and Koufax both looking sharp. Game took a turn on the top of the fourth when Dodgers' Lou Johnson stepped to the plate. Uh-oh. Near the foul pole. Home run. Lou Johnson has his second home run of the World Series. And the Dodgers take a one to nothing lead. Dodgers take a two nothing lead into the bottom of the fifth. Twins got something going. Frank Cuselli doubled. Rich Rollins walked. Runners at first and second with only one out. And here comes the American League MVP Versailles stepping to the plate. Ground ball backhanded by Gilliam to the bag for fours. Oh, what a play! And that would have been a double and at least one run batted in, and we had better take another look at that one. Gilliam was guarding the line to cut down the chance of the extra base hit, and it turned out to be the play. For men of first and second, Sergio Versailles hit a bullet over the top bay. You know, he hit the boy should be a double, you know? Tony Oliva, he's a big hitter, batting champ the whole nine yards. He knew right away that that was a critical lost opportunity for the Twins. I don't know how Junior Gilliam was playing the line. How you playing the line when Sander Kofak pitching when he throwed 95 to 100 miles per hour? But he knows exactly what he was doing. He made the play, and that was the big difference in the whole ball game. Because if that ball go through, we score a couple of runs. And Sunday maybe is out of the ball game because he pitched him a very short rest. Two days rest for Koufax, but he was unstoppable. One more base runner over the last four innings on his way to pitching a complete game shutout. He did it. Sandy Koufax gets his tenth strikeout, his second consecutive shutout of the Twins on Monday on a four-hitter, today on a three-hitter. 
Great twin team. Won 102 games, but on October 14, 1965, Sandy Koufax was a bit better. Aliv has said there was nobody like the left arm of God. Sandy Koufax, uh, you know, if you have to win a game, you give the ball to that guy, you know. You have to be the one now that two to one, you know. It was tough. Uh, and his, his ball was different. Yeah, I remember one time he told me five fast balls in a row. And the balls look like they have eyes. The balls see the body and move, look like a movie, you know. He was great. Not too often that you get a chance to hear something like this, folks. And if you go by Dodger Stadium, they have this interview on one of their quarter walls there. It's fun to listen to. Two legends, the great broadcaster Vin Scully interviewing Sandy Koufax after his tremendous Game 7 performance. Here's the fella who gave the Dodgers the championship. Sandy, in Los Angeles, when you pitched your 7 to nothing shutout, you were quoted as saying after the game, I feel a hundred years old. So today, how do you feel? hundred and one. hundred and one. I feel great, Vinny. I know I don't have to go out there anymore for about four months. <laughs> Sandy, it appeared from upstairs that your fastball was really your only pitch for quite some time. Yes, it was. I don't know what it was today. I didn't have the curveball at all, and I wasn't getting it over. And I just stayed with the fastball and tried to get it in pretty good spots. And when I got the lead, I tried to keep him from pulling the ball if I could. When Jim Gilliam sat here in the ninth inning and watched you on television, he turned and said to me, he looks like a fighter who has been hit and is now fighting on instinct. Is that over-dramatizing, or were you that tired? No, I, I'll tell you, I, I feel like uh, I was a little bit more tired in the, uh, in the last ball game I pitched here, and I know I was more tired uh, the day we won the pennant against Milwaukee, but uh, I think it was a lot hotter in Los Angeles, and uh, the cool weather uh, keeps you from tiring a little bit. I love that clip. It's a great clip. Great TV clip. Up next, we talk with the man that went toe-to-toe with Sandy three times in this series. That is Jim Cott. It's Mad Dog Unleashed with Christopher Mad Dog Russo. I don't have to know everybody! Hear the passion. Be aggressive. Get something done. Hear the knowledge. The game, folks, is about two plays. And that's what it comes down to. Hear the personality. I'm going to start here in an angry mood. Get somebody on the radio! That has made him a sports talk legend. Does that make any sense to you? Guys, you're crazy. It's Mad Dog Unleashed with Christopher Russo. Weekdays, 3 p.m. Eastern on Mad Dog Sports Radio, Channel 82, or anytime on the Sirius XM app. Free for most subscribers. Now for a closer look at the 2065 season, we caught up with our good friend Jim Cott. If you don't know Cott, a great pitcher, played in four decades, 283 wins, 16 gold gloves. He did win a World Series with the Cardinals later in his career in 82. He's a broadcasting Hall of Famer, decorated broadcasting career. He joined us to reflect upon the highs and lows, you're going to love this, of Minnesota's season and that bitter World Series defeat. The 64 Twins team, Jimmy, only won 79 games. A lot of the same guys on 65 where you improved by 23, 24 wins. How come? Well, I, I think one of the big reasons was Mudcat Grant. We got Mudcat in the trade in 64. James Timothy Grant, he won 21 games in 65. And they'd always said about our teams in the early 60s, you know, we were like the Paul Bunyans of the upper Midwest. We could slug home runs. We hit 221 home runs in 64. We didn't hit that many in 65, but our pitching improved. And that was largely because we got Johnny Sane as a pitching coach 
And we went to a four-man rotation. I think I started 42 games that year. Budcat started 39. And our, our pitching improved a great deal in, in both the rotation and in the bullpen. And, and that was the big difference, I think, between 64 and 65. Well, yeah, Sane was a great – everybody loves Sane, so that was a big factor. Um, going into the 65 year, Keene took over for Berra. So the Yankees, who had lost game seven – to St. Louis the year before, nobody could predict their demise so quick. They got old all of a sudden. So I would think going into the 65 season, the Yankees were still theoretically considered, Jimmy, the team to beat in the American League. Is that correct? Oh, no question. In fact, my roommate, Christopher, was veteran Johnny Klipstein that year. And uh, Clipper had been around for a while. And I used to keep a little pocket schedule. And uh, in the little squares, if we won, I'd put a W. If we lost, I'd put an L. We had one little streak. I think we lost four in a row early in the year. But then we started winning series. And Clipper says to me one day, I think we're going to win this thing. I said, really? I mean, the Yankees have won it five years in a row. And even when we had an eight or a nine-game lead, you know, we were still looking over our shoulder because we thought, you know, here come the Yankees. But – Everything really came together for us that year. And as you said, that was that was the start of the demise of the Yankees. Mickey's career ended, and they didn't really get back in contention again and win till 76. The White Sox won 95, Jim, and the Orioles won 94. So they had two good teams with you in the American League. Was there a series there in September where it was still close against either one of those two teams where you won two out of three to give you a little breathing room. How about that? You know, I, I can't recall any of those uh, being that crucial. What, what really, I think, uh, inspired us and gave us a lot of confidence is the series before the All-Star break, uh, we had a four-game set with the Yankees. We won two. We lost one. Now we go to the second game of the doubleheader. We're down a run, two outs, two strikes on Harmon. Pete Mickelson was the pitcher. Fouls off about five of them, and boom, he hits a game-winning home run. So we come out of that series not losing any ground to the Yankees, and I think, you know, they were still in the back of our mind, and then that just kind of propelled us in the second half. I think we had a pretty comfortable lead. I even remember the night before the clincher, I was rooming with Billy Place at that time, in that particular series. And I said, uh, you know, I could hardly sleep that night because even though we had a a seven game lead, we, we had to have one to win and we won that, uh, that next day. So we won by a comfortable margin. You sure did. Killebrew only got four and one at bats that year, Jim. Did he get hurt? What I only hit 25 home runs was Harmon hurt some of that year. What happened to him? Let me hear. We actually lost who was our ace for a long time. Camilo Pasquale. He missed some time. Uh, with a with an elbow injury, and then Harmon dislocated his shoulder. Russ Snyder, who was with the Orioles in a, a, one of those plays at first base where he reached into the baseline and tore up his shoulder, and of course everybody thought, well, there go the Twins. You know, they're missing their ace pitcher and they're missing Harmon Killebrew, but with Don Mincher and Rich Rollins playing first and third, and then my minor league roomie, Sandy Valdespino, uh, started playing a lot of left field. Uh, we actually gained ground, but that that while well, Harmon was out. But that's the reason he only had 400 at bats, 25 home runs because of the shoulder injury. 
All right, how good was the lever that year? Jimmy hit 321, led the league, he had 99 RBI. We all know he was such a tremendous pure hitter. If he stayed healthy, he'd be in the Hall of Fame. How about Oliva, right field in 65? He had a great year. Give me some thoughts on him. Let me hear. Yeah, I think, first of all, Tony should be in the Hall of Fame. He's the only player yet to win a batting title his first two years, his rookie year and the second year. And and really, we all felt that Tony should have been the MVP. Uh, Zoyla Versailles got the MVP, even though he made 39 errors that year. But he did things at shortstop that uh, no one had done until that point. You know, shortstops were glove men. They didn't hit many home runs. And here comes Zoilo. He hits home runs. He makes spectacular plays. He steals bases. And so he really stood out. And actually, it ended up hurting his career because he felt the pressure of being the MVP the following couple years, and his career went downhill. But I think when I used to talk to uh, catchers like Andy Etcheberry and Free, Bill Freehand of the Orioles and Tigers, they said, we knew Killebrew was great. We know Carew was great. But the guy we feared with men on was Tony Oliva. And uh, he was such a complete player. He really should have been the MVP that year. Think about the offense you had, though. You know, Minster, you mentioned it's 22 home runs. Oliva, we just go through. Versailles, the MVP. Uh, Jimmy Hall hit 20 homers with 86 RBIs. Bobby Allison had a good year. Batty Hitton had 60 ribbies. Killebrew off the bench when he was hurt. I mean, that is, you're right. Uh, the Paul Bunyans of the Midwest, Jim, that is a tremendous offensive ball club. Power all over the place. Not an easy out. Not a Harbor, not a 100 RBI man, but you got a man, guys, over 60. Very, very powerful offensive team. Thoughts there for a sec. Go ahead. Yeah, and I, I think what we took a lot of pride in, we being the pitchers, is I think, I don't know, as a as a group, uh, we may have hit double digits and home runs. I mean, we took a lot of pride in, in doing our share, too, knocking in runs. And so, you know, down near the bottom of the order, if you look at some teams today, the Red Sox, for example, they've got uh, – you know, a good meat of the order, but to go one through nine or one through, you know, eight now because there's a DH, but we, we just had depth all up and down the lineup, and I, I think that's what where we stood out from the other teams. Uh, you know, Chicago was built on pitching and defense, and Baltimore had not acquired Frank Robinson yet. They were good, but I, I think up and down the lineup, we were the best. All right, how about Mealy as a manager, Jimmy? Give me some thoughts on your skipper. Go ahead. Well, Sam was a was a player's manager. He took over from Cookie Lavagetto. Uh We had a little controversy later in 66 because Johnny Sane and Hal Narragon got a lot of the uh, publicity and credit. Hal was our bullpen catcher, and he and Johnny worked as a team. And Sam and Billy were kind of aligned, and there was friction there, as you might expect, any time Billy was around. But uh, the thing I, I liked about uh, playing for Sam is, you know, it wasn't as scientific as it is today. He just made out the lineup card, hey, go out and play ball. And I remember uh, before he passed away, I guess five or six years ago, his daughter called said, I'd like a uh, Sam like an autographed picture from you. And I sent him a picture and said, Sam, thanks for giving me the ball every four days. And he he replied through his sister, it was a pleasure giving you the ball every four days, which made me feel great. But that kind of summed up what Sam did. They didn't send signs in from the dugout or anything. He just let us play. And, you know, if things got uh, a little sloppy, he might have a meeting occasionally, but very, very seldom. And 
And he just made it comfortable for everybody coming to the ballpark every day and playing. All right. Uh, the ballpark, Jim, Pitcher's Park or Hitter's Park, or old Metropolitan Stadium? Well, it was a right-hand hitter's park. There's no question. The wind blew out to left, and uh, gosh, I can think of some fly balls that Harmon hit way up in the air, and Tony Kubek at short would be drifting back like he thought it was going to be a pop-up, and the next thing you know, it's in the in the second row of the seat. So it was a right-hand power hitter's ballpark. In fact, at one time, there was a uh, trade rumor that Bunning was coming from Detroit to Minnesota. Felipe Alou was going from San Francisco to Detroit. And I was going from Minnesota to Candlestick because that was a left-hand pitcher's park. And our park was right-hand, which Bunning would have would have excelled there. So it, it was, uh, tell you the truth, I'd rather pitch. I thought Fenway Park was more of a pitcher's park for a left-hander than Met Stadium because in Fenway, you might give up doubles, but in uh, Metropolitan Stadium, boy, you had to own that outside corner and make right-hand hitters hit it the other way. All right, now, you win the division relatively comfortably. The Dodgers and Giants in their typical war, and then the Dodgers closed the season with a great streak and caught the Giants at the end. And They win 97, Giants win 95. You knew you guys were going to play the winner. Did you follow that pennant race in the National League or not? Not as closely as you would today. You know, no cable TV, very few games on TV. We were just thrilled to, you know, to be there. And uh, we weren't looking that far ahead as to who we were going to play. But, of course, when we, when we did end up playing the Dodgers, you know, here came Koufax and Drysdale, as, as my friend, the late Ron Paranowski, used to say, the Dodgers were known as Koufax, Drysdale, and many others. And uh, <laughs> So here they, they come to town. And, of course, uh, you may have heard this story before, but Sandy didn't pitch game one because of the Jewish holiday. Yom Kippur. So I, I drew him in two, five, and seven. So we knocked Drysdale out in the first game, and uh, Alston goes out to take the ball from him, and he looks at Alston. Drysdale does and says, "I bet you wish I was Jewish, don't you?" <laughs> <laughs> Good line. That's funny. I had not heard yeah. that one before. You know, I'm I'm warming up the next day in the bullpen, and I've never seen Sandy pitch before. And, you know, it's cold and it's raw, and he's looking at me. We're only about 12 feet apart, and the bullpen's warming up. But he said, man, we you guys play in this weather? And I thought, that's the best chance we have. We play in this cold weather all the time. So game two starts, and we go through the lineup the first time, nothing, nothing. And I sat down next to Johnny Sane in the dugout. I said, John, if I give up a run, this game's over. I don't see anybody on our team that can hit this guy. He just stood out so much. So, uh, you know, after we, as you mentioned earlier, took that 2-0 lead, we went out to Dodger Stadium, and, and I don't think we scored more than a run or two in those three games. And then uh, Sandy and I hooked up in Game 7, coming back on two days rest, which was customary in that time. And uh, he could hardly throw a curveball. You know, I remember having our pictures taken before the game, and my eyes were watering because he had so much of this hot ointment on his arm and his shoulder, killed the pain. And uh, he hardly threw a curveball, but I think we got two or three hits off him, and he pitched all nine innings, and that was it. I gave up, in game seven, I gave up three hits on three consecutive pitches in about a minute and a half, a home run, a double, and a single. And we could have gone home right then. 
Yeah, we'll get to that in a sec. Now, you win the first two. As you said, you got to Drysdale game one. You scored eight runs. You beat Koufax in game two. You go all the way on a seven-hitter. You win the game. Dodgers made four errors in two games. You were errorless. So you got to feel pretty good getting on that plane. You're going out to Dodger Stadium. You figure you win one of the three. You're in good shape. You got Pasquale there in game three against Osteen. Mudcat Grant coming back in game four. You coming back in game five. You got to figure you're going to win one game uh, out of those three. And as it turns out, as you said, you lost four nothing, seven two, and seven nothing. So you got killed out at the Chavez Ravine. Jim, give me some thoughts on those three games. Go ahead. Well, the, the biggest game was game three, and that was my soon-to-become good friend and teammate, and he was actually my pitching coach for a while, Claude Osteen. And we started Camilo Pasquale. Now, Camilo had been injured during the year, and he wasn't really in top form. But I think Sam Neely thought, you know, I owe it to him to start a World Series game. We had a left-hand pitcher with a really good pickoff move, Jim Merritt. He pitched well for us. He later went on and won 20 games for the Reds. But we thought if we had started Jim Merritt, because the Dodgers were built on speed. They had Willie Davis, Tommy Davis, Maury Wills, Gilliam. And with Jim's pickoff move, we thought left-hand pitchers matched up better against him. And they uh, they ran wild on, on Camilo. And, you know, coming back now and just winning that one game, well, now all of a sudden you're looking at Drysdale and Koufax and, the chances of knocking Drysdale around two games in a row are not good. So as you said, we scored two runs in three games. Mudcat came back with a big effort in game six, and uh, I would have had to pitch a shutout in game seven to to have a tie go to extra innings or something because we, we couldn't make a dent in Koufax in game seven. So I look back and say that game three – was really the big game. Had we been able to win that one, I think then, as you mentioned, we that would have put a lot of pressure on the Dodgers to win to win four in a row. All right, Koufax goes into Game Seven. Uh, game Five was on October 11th. He shut the Twins out on a four hitter. You started that game, and then in Game Seven was on October 14th. So he's going there on two days rest. Did you think that could be a factor? Were you a little more hopeful there in the seventh game, thinking, you know what, all right, Koufax is great. We understand that. Shut us out two days ago, but now he's on short rest. Let's take a lot of pitches. Let's try to lengthen this game out so maybe he'll get tired in the middle innings on short rest. Did you guys think of that approach prior to game seven? You know, not not that much because – Coming back, having your ace come back in the World Series on short rest was nothing new. Burdett did it in the 50s for the Braves. So we, we never thought anything of coming back on, on short rest. But we did notice, and I know it was Drysdale's turn to pitch, and Alston called him in in respect to Drysdale and said, look, it's your turn. And Drysdale immediately interrupted and said, start Sandy. Because Drysdale could warm up and come out of the bullpen if needed. Sandy would take a little bit longer to warm up, so he wouldn't have been as good coming out of the bull. So let's start Sandy and see what happens. And we we had a mini rally going, if you can call it that, in I believe the fifth inning. A couple men on, and Zoilo hit a, a, a ball down the third baseline that Gilliam made a heck of a play on. And we kind of had him on the ropes in that inning. And then once they made that play and got it out, and Johnny Roseboro was the catcher, he became my teammate later. He said, well, we didn't even call a curveball after the fifth inning because he couldn't throw one. So he was beating us on 
country hardball, but you know, he, he stood out. I don't, we didn't have miles per hour, but he stood out so much in terms of his uh, fastball that nobody, I think he struck out 10 and that Christopher is the last world series to my knowledge that went seven games and every game was a complete game win. Wow, for the team that won the game. Yeah, Mudcat in game six, Koufax game seven and five, Drysdale game four, Osteen in game three, you in game two, and Grant in game one. You are 1,000% correct. That's the only time. I don't know if that's the only time it's happened, but it happened every game in that series. What was the feeling in the clubhouse after you lost game seven at home? You know, I, I, I wish it had been more of – I guess I wish we would have been more, uh, we would have had more of a sense of urgency. I think when you get to the World Series for the first time, it, it's, that's a huge accomplishment. You know, there aren't any wild card games and playoffs and diluted pennant races like they are today. You know, you battled it out with nine other teams and nine of them went home and you went to the World Series. So you really felt like you accomplished something. And so I think afterwards we had a feeling of, hey, we went from seventh to first. We won 102 games. We got a good team. We'll be back again. And, of course, we didn't. In fact, just as a quick aside story, I was watching the playoffs on TV in 1997 Orioles and Indians. My friend Tim McCarver's on the broadcast, and he said if uh, if the Orioles win, Cal Ripken goes back to the World Series for the first time since 1983, who has the record for the longest period of time between World Series appearances. And I scratched my head and I said, I think I'm the answer to that question. Wow. And I was. It was uh, 17 years before I got back in 1982. And I remember telling all my Cardinal teammates, guys, Get rid of all the distractions, all the ticket requests, the families, isolate yourself. you got to really concentrate on baseball because you can get caught up in just the euphoria of being in the World Series. And I think that's what we did in 65. Not that we weren't trying, but we were comfortable just being there. In uh, I remember in 82, I rented a motel room where nobody even knew where I was. And I said, I'm going to take every inning that it's the last inning of the season. Of course, we ended up winning that one in seven. But you, but that is, the, you know, you made the playoffs in 69-70 and could have made it in 67. But the 65 team, Jim, in your estimation, is the best Twins team that you ever played on, correct? Yeah, I think so, really. Yeah, I mean, we were, we were by far the class of the West in 69 and 70, but Harmon and I were talking uh, about looking at Kansas City before they became Oakland. And we said, you know what? These guys are really going to be good. Bando, Rudy, Jackson, Catfish. So you knew they were coming. But in 69 and 70, there wasn't really another team in the West that could touch us. But then when we went to the playoffs, there we are. We're looking at Palmer, McNally, Cuellar. We're looking at the Orioles again, and we couldn't get past them. Those first two playoff games ever in the American League, if anybody ever took time to go through the box scores, may have been the best two games ever. The Orioles beat us in 10 in game one. Mitterwald, our catcher, had hit a home run uh, just about a foot foul the inning before. Uh, Jim Perry and Boswell went like nine, 10 innings, and uh, they beat us like two to one, three to two, one on a, on a bunt, on a squeeze bunt. But those were really intense, good playoff games that uh, you'd find it hard to find two better games than that for a baseball fan. Again, in our panel's opinion, the 65 Twins, one of the 10 great teams, never to win a World Series. Hitting, Killebrew and Oliva. Pitching, 
Cot and Mudcat Grant. What they didn't have was Sandy Koufax. And in this World Series, Sandy was the difference. For more episodes and baseball's greatest teams to never win a championship or to listen to previous seasons covering the history of Thanksgiving football and the NCAA tournament, download the SXM app free for most subscribers. Download it today and search Digging Up the Past or subscribe to our feed wherever you get your podcasts. Digging Up the Past is part of the SiriusXM Podcast Network. The executive producer is Bill Zimmerman. The associate producers are Chris Tyler and Andrew Emmer. Sound design is by Matt Damro and Joey DeFazio. Andy King is the director of sports podcasting for SiriusXM. Special thanks to SiriusXM's senior vice president of sports programming and podcasting, Steve Cohen. Vice president of sports programming, Eric Spitz. And Mad Dog Sports Radio program director, Steve Torrey.